story is told during the Revolutionary War of a preacher by the name of Peter Miller. I don't know if you ever read anything about him or not. The community loved Pastor Miller, but there was one man in the community that didn't like him very much. He was a bar owner by the name of Michael Widman, and he lived nearby. Michael Widman hated Miller for his Christian life and his testimony. In fact, the man violently opposed Miller and ridiculed his followers. Widman was not only a hater of the church, but was also a vocal rebel who was eventually arrested for treason and sentenced to death. Instead of celebrating his enemy's death, as soon as Miller heard of Widman's sentence, he set out on foot to visit George Washington, who was at Valley Forge. Miller sought to intercede for Widman's life. Washington listened to the minister's earnest plea, but told him that he didn't feel like that he should pardon his friend. Miller said, my friend? Well, he's not my friend. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. General Washington said with great surprise, what, you mean you've walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy? That, in my judgment, plus the matter, puts the matter in a much different light. I will grant him a pardon for your sake. General Washington signed the pardon, and Miller quickly left for the place where his neighbor, his enemy, was to be executed. And he arrived just as Whitman was walking to the scaffold. And when Whitman saw Miller, he said, Oh, Peter Miller, you've come to have your revenge by watching me hang. But to his surprise, he watched the minister step out of the crowd and produce the pardon that saved his life. Peter Miller did a great and noble thing that day. Not many of us would think about saving our worst enemy, but Peter Miller did just that. But as amazing as this story is, it does not compare what God has done for us. As a result of sin, mankind is opposed to God. We are enemies to God. But rather letting us hang for our sins, God has provided the pardon by which we must be saved. Through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, his son, and our ultimate savior. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord God, once again, may your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. Draw us to closer to yourself. And Father, for those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning, we pray that today will be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, I want to help you to recall the design of the book is to show the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. Remember, it was written to a group of Jews outside of Jerusalem who had taken the step of believing and receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In fact, think about it. If you think about it for a few minutes, you'll know that Judaism was replaced by Christianity. And the warnings in the book are targeting those Jews who were either unbelieving or just had the head knowledge about Jesus but had not yet made that commitment to him. In the midst of all of this, a very natural question would arise among the Jews. And they would say, well, listen, if this new covenant is greater than the old covenant, what about the priesthood of the old covenant? Why that question? Because one must know that in the Old Testament, 
Judaism is based upon priests mediating between God and mankind. And the first question perhaps a Jew would ask is this, if this new covenant is better, where is your high priest? If this new covenant is better, where is the mediator that takes God to man? We saw last week that we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. So this new covenant is not without a high priest. It's in Jesus in one act of giving his life accomplished what millions of sacrifices could not accomplish through mere human priests. The fact is our great high priest Jesus has provided a new and living way. And consequently, folks, there are no more sacrifices needed. There are no more priests needed. It is Jesus, our great high priest, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. He is our living mediator. He is the only priest that is needed. It's interesting, is it not, in the light of this truth, that the Pope goes by this glorified title, Pontifus Maximus, which, by the way, is translated the greatest high priest. No, he's not. That's blasphemy. Obviously, not only are they teaching idolatry in the Roman Catholic Church, but they're completely ignorant when it comes to the Word of God. And I can say that because I've got the floor. <laughs> so this theme takes us through the heart of the book from Hebrews 4.14, of where we started last week, all the way to Hebrews 10.39, around which the author talks about, revolves around that great theological truth that Jesus is our great high priest, superior to any high priest. You see, there's a multiplicity of high priests in the Old Testament. In fact, there were 24 different ranks in the Levitical priesthood. But we know there's only one mediator, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. So this morning, we begin our text in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And the author presents to us this morning three facts concerning the theological truth that undergirds the fact that Jesus is our chosen high priest. First of all, the qualifications of a typical high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And the first thing that the author wants to do here is to show to his Jewish readers that Jesus fits all the biblical qualifications necessary to be a high priest. And there are three qualifications that he shares with us here. Number one, a true high priest had to be selected by God from men. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, and also verse 4. Hebrews 5, 1 says, For every priest taken from among men is appointed for men. Now let's stop right there, and we'll look at the rest of that verse in a few minutes. So every high priest is taken from men. And to show you that every high priest is also appointed by God, called by God, let's look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, that says this, And no man takes that honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So a true high priest had to be taken from man. He had to be man. He had to be chosen by God, because you see, all Old Testament priests were appointed by God from among men. Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, the Bible says, as God speaks to Moses, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest 
Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithmar. So here, God in the Old Testament directly chooses his priests. We read in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 10, when the prophet has a vision of the desecration of the temple, Ezekiel sees men as priests, and it's blasphemous because these were no true priests. In fact, they assigned themselves as priests. They had basically chosen themselves. They were not chosen by God. So think about it for a few moments. God didn't choose angels to be priests, did he? Why? Because angels didn't have the nature of men. Nor did angels have any idea what men go through. In other words, they never experienced what we face. It had to be a man chosen out of men by God to be a priest. And why was that so important? I'll tell you why. The Jews could never understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They could never understand how God became men, uh, became a man. And, and they were asking themselves, well, how could God become man? And they could not understand then why a Messiah would have to die. And it's here the author simply answers that problem that they were having of the incarnation. You see, God had to become man or he could have never been the great high priest for men. Unless God feels what it's like to be a man, unless God goes through what man has to face with trials and temptations, he would have had no experimentally based truth as a high priest for men. And listen, I've read comments and these comments are ignorant comments. Are you ready for them? And I've read them from unbelievers and atheists alike. And here's what they'll say. That God, if he does exist, is aloof. If, if God, if he does exist, is separate from men. And if God does exist, he just winds up the universe, steps back, and lets things happen. No, he didn't. He stepped into this world fully man, yet fully God, in order to be sympathetic and merciful and faithful as our great high priest. The great evangelist and preacher John Calvin once said, It was necessary for Christ to become a real man. For as we are far from God as we stand before him through our earthly priests, Jesus could have never been our high priest if he weren't one of us. And that doesn't diminish his divinity or his glory as God, but instead makes us more aware that he is fitted to reconcile us to God because he is man. Notice that word, appointed. Some of you have the word in verse 1 of chapter 5, ordained. And that word in the Greek means an authoritative appointment to an office. Priests are authoritatively appointed by God. They were not arbitrarily selected among men, nor were they selected based on what they wanted to do, but they were appointed by God. And note in Hebrews 5, 4 again, no man takes this honor to himself. Even Aaron was confirmed by God as high priest when God caused Aaron's rod to bud and produce almonds. Remember that? That was in Numbers chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. And that showed that God had approved Aaron as high priest. So he was too confirmed by God. Secondly, another qualification, a true high priest must be sympathetic with mankind. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2, listen to what the writer says of Hebrews. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. 
since he himself is also subject to weakness. In other words, a priest must be able to be fully man and feel what mankind feels. And understand, this takes us past, when we talk about Jesus as our high priest, it takes us past the omniscience of God. And by the way, that word omniscience means knowledge, foreknowledge. For example, in the Gospels, the Pharisees would be talking among themselves, reasoning among themselves, and Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. That's knowledge of God, omniscience of God, the knowledge of God. And listen, I want to say this to you. Omniscience knows everything. Sympathy feels everything. So think about it when you think of those two words. Jesus is God and is therefore omniscient. In other words, he didn't have to learn any information about mankind. He didn't have to guess what people were talking about. But listen, Jesus did need to learn the feelings, the trials, the temptations, the grief, the tribulations of mankind so that he could be sympathetic beyond being just omniscient. So the word compassion now, don't get me wrong, it means to bear gently because you feel it too. Bear gently. And here's the kicker. Are you ready for the kicker? Our earthly priest must bear gently with the thoughts or that word going astray of mankind knowing that he has the same problems and struggles. He must live life with them as an earthly priest. He must live with them and be completely involved in the human situation in the Old Testament. And, and notice, notice here, Jesus was different. How was he different? Well, Jesus is superior to any earthly priest because the earthly priest had sin, but Jesus did not. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments. The Greeks had an interesting concept, and they don't have very many interesting concepts, believe me. Uh, this is one that I found was interesting. But here's what they say. All virtues were the means between the two extremes. In other words, a virtuous man was a man that found his way down the middle of every issue. And it didn't mean that he was in the middle of the road politically or morally, but it had to do with the gamut of emotions and feelings. So that particular word, compassion, when you break it down, means something like being in the middle between being irritated and being apathetic. In other words, it's like a feeling, a little bit of the irritation, a little bit of apathy, so that one is tolerant and not indulgent. That's what it means. And that's just a fancy way to say that the priest was in the middle of extravagant grief and utter indifference, and he knew the extremes of human emotions and bearing gently with all of them, knowing what they were going through. And Jesus was the same, only he was without sin, which made him a high priest superior. Now, the rest of Hebrews 5.2. Those who are ignorant and going astray, the Greek word translated ignorant here means here to have a gentle forbearance on those who go astray because of ignorance. Very interesting. Numbers chapter 15, verse 28 says, So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally when he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him and it shall be forgiven him. Now that brings up a question, right? The priest only ministered and made atonement for those who unwittingly and unintentionally sinned in ignorance. Now, this is something that you may not realize, something I didn't realize, 
in all the Old Testament, there was absolutely no provision made for the one who was deliberate and defiant against God. There was no provision made for forgiveness. It was amazing. And we'll talk more about that, how it relates to us as a New Testament church. In Psalm 1913, David prayed. Here's what he prayed. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, David says, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. David is praying against defiantly breaking God's law. And by the way, folks, it's no different today. A person who defiantly and continually rejects God's sacrifice through Christ, which, by the way, Jesus is our only provision for sin. There's no other sacrifice, and it all hinges on repentance. But there's a lot of people today that are still staring God in the face, still doing what they want to do when they want to do them, still continually sinning against God because they are defined against God's law, and I will tell you that there is no provision made at that point for them. And what that means is you continually reject Christ, you reject Christ, you reject Christ. Sometimes then you get to the point of your heart being hardened, and when your heart is hardened, that's called the unpardonable sin. I've had people come to my office and say, Pastor, I've committed the unpardonable sin. I laugh and I say, no, you didn't, because you just confessed to me that you committed it. No, you didn't. You see, there's no sin that Jesus can't forgive. I've heard people say, well, I've done too much wrong in my life. There is no sin that Jesus cannot forgive except for the sin that says, I reject you, I reject you, I reject you, I reject you. And listen, the more you reject him, the harder your heart becomes. And there's no provision for that sin. And that's what he's talking about here. It happens all the time. A person who defiantly disobeys and defiantly rebels against God with no repentance. Now, number three, the third requirement, the true priest had to make sacrifices for mankind. Hebrews chapter 5, back to verse 1, and also verse 3. Notice in verse 1, as we go back to that, the phrase, and all things pertain to God, that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Hebrews 5, 3 says basically the same thing. Because of this, he is required for the people, also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So the priest was appointed for mankind, and things pertaining to God. That means he was the mediator to bring mankind into the presence of God. He was to act on behalf of men and the things that opened up the way to God. And notice his work was to offer gifts and sacrifices. When you look at that word gifts, what did the gifts mean? That could include some of the money that the people were required to pay for temple tax. Maybe it included some of the various things they would give to the priesthood indirectly given them to God. As they gave to the priest, it was like, okay, we're giving to God as well, uh, and it was a, a gift of thanksgiving. And I believe as we look at this verse, it refers a direct reference to the meal offering. You see, there were five key offerings, and only one bloodless offering in the Old Testament, and that was the meal offering. And by the way, I like the meal offering. I'll tell you why I like it in a few minutes. First of all, it has meal in it, and, uh, you know, that means eating, and I like to eat. Now, it represented a gift of thanksgiving to God. 
It was a gift of dedication to God. And the way it worked was that the person would bring the meal offering. They would bring fine flour, the Bible says. They would bring oil and frankincense, and they would mix it all together. And a handful of these things would then be burnt on the altar. You say, man, that must have really stunk or smelled good. Listen, the frankincense made it smell like a sweet offering to God. The remainder would belong to the priests for their consumption. Now, you could bring it all put together in a cake. That's how you could bring it. And by the way, I like cake. I won't tell you what I like, but uh, you can figure it out. German chocolate cake, uh, all kinds of cakes. Yeah, cakes, 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 cakes. So anytime you bring me a cake, we don't consider that a meal offering. We, we consider it a consumption offering for me. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a meal offering to God. So just, just keep that in mind as you go through the holidays. If the Holy Spirit leads you, But because of the frankincense, as it was burned or cooked, sweet-smelling offering to God, and there could be, of course, no leaven nor honey in it because it would ferment. In addition, it had to have salt because salt preserves. The meal was a dedication offering. It symbolized the dedication of a person, all his possessions to God, and thanks for what God had done in their life. Secondly, it talks about sacrifices. This refers to the blood sacrifices for the sins of the people, including the priest himself. Sacrificing for men as offering sacrifices also for himself. Hebrews 9, 7 says this. But unto the second part, by the way, the second part there in, in Hebrews 9, 7 refers to the Holy of Holies. But into the second part, the high priest went in once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now, Jesus did not enter into the Holy of Holies, the physical Holy of Holies. But what did he do at, at, at his death? What happened to the Holy of Holies at his death? You know what happened. The veil of the temple was split in two from top to bottom. And we talked about last week that it wasn't just a, a little curtain, right? It wasn't a curtain that you would put in your house, but it was a very thick piece of cloth very, very thick, that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that that, that, that veil, that curtain, ripped from top to bottom. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus died on the cross, his death satisfied God's wrath against us. It meant that we could then go boldly into the throne of grace Boldly before the throne of God for his grace and for his mercy. That's what it means. By the way, you guys can say hallelujah too if you want to. Don't let Thomas be the only one. I, listen, when he does that, that's like, a, that's like a giving a, a, a dog a bone. I just get more, I get louder and I get more excited. So you guys just keep doing that, okay? Follow, follow his example. Follow his example. All right. So Jesus went not into the physical Holy of Holies, but he went to the heavenly Holy of Holies, and he went in without sin. And that makes him a greater high priest than anyone who would ever live. Calvin, again, in the midst of the Reformation, said this. He said, as in the promise of God to govern the church, so God reserves to himself alone to lay down the order and manner of the administration. On this I base the principle that the papal priesthood 
the papal priesthood is a false priesthood because it was fabricated in a human workshop. Isn't that interesting? John Calvin said that. Number two, the true and appointed great high priest. It's here that the author shifts to Jesus. Look at verse 5 with me. Hebrews chapter 5. And I want you to notice something about this verse. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. It means that Jesus didn't make himself the high priest. Like all other high priests, in his appointment, Jesus didn't say, well, I think I need to be high priest. I need to seek my glory in my own. That's not what it says here. But it says that God sovereignly appointed Jesus as high priest, and Jesus obediently accepted that role. So Jesus fits, does he not, the first requirement on the fact he was called, he was appointed by God, he never usurped his authority, he came not to glorify himself, but only to glorify the very Father who appointed him as high priest. In John 8, 54, a wonderful statement made of Jesus. Listen to what he says. This is what he says about himself. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Jesus is saying that he never sought his own glory. Philippians 2, 7, Paul puts it this way. Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And it was God, according to Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, who has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And I love this, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day that's going to happen. One day that's going to happen. All the wicked and evil people that have ever lived in this world is going to have to do that. Listen, it's better to do it now than do it later. Right? And that's going to happen one day. But notice it's all God. God the Father glorifies his Son, has invested Jesus with the authority and honor of the great high priest. No wonder it says in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, set up my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus Christ was given the right and authority to be who he is by God the Father, our chosen high priest. But look at the rest of verse 5. Very interesting. But it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, Jesus was different than any other priest. Not only was he appointed by God, but he was God's son. Not just God's son, but he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And as I've said before, that's what separates Christianity from all the other religions and cults in the world. All the other religions and cults say, well, this Jesus guy, he was just a good man. He was, a, he was just a prophet. No, he wasn't. He was the Son of God. He was God in flesh, fully man and fully God. Emmanuel, we sing about that during Christmas. God in flesh, but also man as well. Notice here, he says in verse 7, very important. So Jesus got his right to be priest from God. But listen to what else he says in verse 6. As he also says in another place, you are priests forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You say, well, who in the world is this Melchizedek? 
Melchizedek, I will tell you, is a rare figure in the Old Testament. In fact, he only appears in two places in the Old Testament. And this is, this is fascinating. He first appears in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. Turn with me. Genesis chapter 14, all the way to the front. And beginning in verse 18, I, you, you may have 17. It's actually 18. I don't know what you have on your, on your outline. But it's actually Genesis 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him. Who is him? He blessed Abraham or Abram. And he said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tithe of all. Some of you may have the word tenth of all. I want you to notice some things about this Melchizedek. He's also talked about in Psalm 110, verse 4. Turn there with me. These are the only two verses of Scripture that we read about Melchizedek. By the way, Psalm 110, verse 4, you will not be surprised as a messianic psalm. talks about Jesus. And look at Psalm 110. We looked at verse 1 a while ago, but look down to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So twice he's mentioned. Now, I want you to notice that Genesis first identifies him as the king of Salem. Salem, by the way, was a Gentile and pagan territory. And according to Genesis 14, which we just read, Melchizedek is not only a priest, but he's also a king. Now, a king, you would think, would be waited on, right? He would be served. But notice Melchizedek performs a task that's not common to kings. He offers bread and wine to Abram. It is then that Genesis identifies him as priest of the Most High God. It means that Melchizedek, and notice the, the phrase, priest of the Most High God, it means that he had a higher priesthood than Aaron. I mean, in some mysterious way, and we can't describe it all, but God appointed this priest from a foreign people unto himself. And I want you to notice that first, Melchizedek blesses Abram, and Abram responds by giving him a tenth of everything. And as quickly as he comes on the scene, he's gone. Very interesting. Now, I'm not going to give up all these things about Melchizedek, but I, because we're going to talk more about him in Hebrews chapter 7 in a few weeks. That means you've got to come back in a few weeks. You won't know when to come back. That means you've got to come back every Sunday in case I decide next week to squeeze it in, right? But Hebrews chapter 7 talks about that. We'll go more into, more into who he is. But Melchizedek, because of what we read in Psalm 110.4, which is a messianic psalm, Melchizedek is a type of Christ in many, many ways. And to kind of whet your appetite, before we get to Hebrews 7. Think about it. He was introduced as the king of Salem. Now, Salem was the original name of Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? 
Melchizedek was a king, but not only king, but a priest of the Most High. Now let me ask you a question. Was Aaron ever a king? No. He was a priest. But think about it. If Jesus was both a king and a priest, then he wasn't after the order of Aaron. That's what it says. He's out of the order of Melchizedek. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Because just like Melchizedek, Jesus was both king and priest. Follow me? And not only that, but did you catch that phrase in Hebrews 5, 6? You are a priest forever. Was Aaron a priest forever? No. But Melchizedek was. And what's interesting is that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus in the Old Testament. And you see Jesus all the way in to the Old Testament. You see him as that fourth person in the fire in the book of Daniel, right? When Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and says, oh, there's four people in there. That's what caused Nebuchadnezzar to, to worship the real God. Jesus everywhere. He's in Genesis chapter 1 at creation when God says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made us in his image. Jesus is all over. And listen, I get so tired of hearing preachers say, well, the Old Testament doesn't mean a thing. Oh, it means everything. It means everything. And these preachers, they'll say, well, my people don't need to know the Old Testament. Oh, yes, you do. You need to know the Old Testament because the Old Testament backs up what is said in the New Testament. And so Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, and the Jews knew that that must be important. Why? Because of Abram. He paid tithes to Melchizedek. And as you know, Abraham wasn't some small-town guy in the minds of Jews. He was it in the minds of Jews. The story is told several years ago. I couldn't believe this story. I started laughing. It was so crazy, right? This 33-year-old Frenchman was nailed to a cross on the patio of a plush hotel in the Dominican Republic. And you know what he said? It was his contribution to salvation and peace among mankind. <laughs> he wanted to hang there for three days. But within 24 hours, he was so weak, he was forced to give up his plan. Even before that, the cross had to be laid horizontally on the ground to alleviate his suffering. Now, here's what I think, think about this man. This man was a sandwich shy of a picnic basket. Or the lights were on, but nobody was at home. I mean, it was obvious to all that there was no way he could endure the terrible ordeal he had imposed on himself. And I will tell, I will tell you, the failure and the ignorance of this man's sacrifice isn't surprising because it stands in stark contrast to the unique atoning work of our Jesus as our appointed and great high priest. He alone is our sacrifice. He alone is better than any sacrifice made by a priest. He alone is better than any attempt at sacrifice by foolish men like this guy. Jesus is truly our appointed high priest. He certainly fits the qualification in that he was truly chosen and appointed by God. Praise God, God had another plan. Praise God, we didn't have to hang on the cross for our sins. Praise God today that God said, listen, I've got a better high priest. He's superior to any high priest we have. Give him praise today because God is good. God is good. 
Now the true and perfect high priest. And we conclude this, and I'm just getting warmed up. The second qualification was what? He was required to be sympathetic with mankind. Was Jesus sympathetic with us? Oh, he certainly was. He was born a man. Hebrews 5, 7 says this, who in the days of his flesh, and just take that verse right there, just that section, that's a loaded theological statement referring to his humanity. And the rest of verse 7 says, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. We need to unpack that. That's a powerful verse of Scripture. That word for cries, by the way, means a cry which no man chooses to utter. It's a cry that's, that's affected, that's literally wrung out of a man involuntarily in the anguish and pain that Jesus faced. He cried out, vehement cry and tears. Now think about it. When you read this verse with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, what incident in Jesus' life does that speak to you about? Not just the cross, but what before the cross? Anyone know? You know, the first service, nobody knew either. So don't feel like that you're smarter than them. The Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. You, that was the place that we visited while we were in Israel. We, we've gone there twice to Israel. And, and that really, that place, more than any other place in Israel that we visited, got me very emotional. Because it was there that Jesus made that decision for me and for you to go to the cross. That's where he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. It was there that his greatest climax of his suffering began to show, even in his flesh. It was there that Jesus began to bear the sins of the world and the crush of mankind's sins were all upon him. Recall, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he went to the cross, where he prayed three times for God the Father to find another way. But it was there that night in the midst of grief, brokenness, and pain. We prayed, the Bible says, prayed so hard that his agony was so severe that his sweat was as great drops of blood as he called out to his father in heaven. And notice he prayed unto him who was able to save him from death. In the Greek that phrase is one word and it means out from within. Out from within. Very important word because he wasn't saying, God, don't let me die. Because Jesus knew from that very hour that he had come into the world to die. But he was saying this. It's a beautiful phrase. Father, once I die, once I take my final breath and face physical death, get me out of it. Get me out of it. And think about it, it wasn't that he was praying that he wouldn't have to go to the cross and die. No, get this, he was praying for his resurrection. Get me out of it. Once I face it, get me out of it. He was praying to God to save him out of death. And notice that God heard him because of his godly fear. And don't get that word fear mixed up with the, with the word phobia. That's the word fear that's often used. But this, this word here means that he wasn't fearful of dying. But the word for fear meant literally that Jesus had devoutly submitted himself to God, to God's will in reverence of who the Heavenly Father is. 
listen, how does that apply to us? Wherever you've been in your journey in life, whatever anguish and grief and despair you've faced, our Lord Jesus can sympathize with us because as our great high priest, he's gone through it all as well. Now, verse 8, as we close the message this morning, and I, and I love these verses because verse 8 ties it all together. It really helps us to see what Jesus has done for us. Chapter 5, verse 8. Here's what it says. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Fantastic truth. Let me ask you a question. Do we teach our children to be obedient by making them suffer? No. We take our kids from the time they're born and teach them what not to do and what to avoid that could hurt them, but sometimes they have to learn the hard way. You say, don't touch that hot stove because it is hot. Sometimes they touch it, it burns them, they learn. In other words, you learn when you suffer. You don't purposely push them into something that would hurt them, right? But get this. Hebrews 5.8 says that God the Father pushed his son Jesus into the suffering he had to endure. That's amazing. You see, sympathy comes through experience. And Jesus learned obedience in the sense of being the Son of God in his incarnation through suffering. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of high priest I want. I want a God who feels like I do. I want to serve a God who knows what I'm going through. I want to serve a God that prays for me and intercedes for me all the time. That's the high priest that I want. And we have the high priest in Jesus. Look at verse 9. He goes on to say, and having been perfected. Doesn't mean that he was created because Jesus wasn't created. Jesus was the creator. But he's been perfected. It means that he was made complete. He was made complete. He, was, he had perfect qualifications to be our great and perfect high priest. And recall that third qualification, how to make sacrifices for sins. Jesus did that as well because the author goes on here to say that, that uh, as the, he, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he completed all three qualifications, perfect qualifications. His death on the cross. And by the way, that word author means the cause or originator. He's the author of our eternal salvation as we are obedient by faith in him. And here's what's cool, folks. We'll get here eventually. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, one of my favorite verses of Scripture. Jesus is our author and finisher of our faith. He said, well, pastor, how come I still struggle? How come I still struggle in this life? I, I know Jesus. I, I love the Lord, but, but temptation is after me, and the devil's always whispering lies to me. Why am I suffering here? Think about it. Jesus has redeemed your soul and your spirit, but he hasn't redeemed this. This flesh is unredeemed. And I wish, don't you wish, <laughs> That God would have just said, all right, when I redeem you, I'll redeem the whole thing. No, that's not the way God's plans work. You need to understand that we are still in kindergarten. 
We're still in preschool. We haven't graduated yet. But one day when we see Jesus face to face, he will not just be the author of our salvation, but the finisher of our salvation. He will be like he is in heaven today as we see him face to face, as we worship him for all eternity. Folks, you can't get anything better than that. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, the author says this, hold fast to that confession. Hold fast. There's nothing better than that. Dorothy Sayers, in her book entitled The Greatest Drama Ever Staged, says that the incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall. God chose to let us suffer. God chose to be subject for us to be subject to sorrows and death. Yet God had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. I like that. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life. By the way, do you have trivial irritations of family life sometimes? And the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money. Ever been there? To the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. Our Lord was born in poverty and he suffered infinite pain. All for us. And thought it was well worth his time. For the joy, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, for the joy he endured the cross. For the joy he died for us. Hallelujah. What a great high priest. Hallelujah. We have a great high priest who is perfectly qualified and chosen by God, his son and our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us do today, hold fast to that confession, hold fast to Jesus, for he is the only mediator, the only savior that we need. I wonder today, you're here. You say, Pastor, listen, if I were to die today, I'm not so sure I'd go to heaven. You're here today and you've been in church all your life. And I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation or trying to make you think, oh, where am I at? Listen, you've got to know that you know that you know that you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You see, he's the only sacrifice. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You see, we try to do all kinds of things to try to get to the Father. We try to do good works. Well, if I just do some things good enough, right, God will be pleased. Sometimes we say, listen, I believe in God. Well, so does the devil. Well, does that make you any different than the devil? We have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You're here this morning. You haven't done that. Today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day of you stop playing a game with God, trying to look like that you're holy, trying to look like that you're right with God, when actually you're far away from the heart of God. Today's the day. But if you've done that, and you know Jesus lives in your life, but you've got things that Jesus needs to sympathize with you, right? You might have relationship problems. You might have family problems. You might have all kinds of things. Come and pray at this altar. This altar is always open for prayer. We will come with you. We will pray for you and with you, and we will be glad to rejoice together as God answers prayer in your life. God will hear your prayers. God will answer your prayers.
Let's stand together and pray. Father God, thank you today for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for your truth of this message that Jesus was our chosen high priest. Father, we pray that you will bless now this invitation time, Lord. Use it for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.